Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's fun, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. World Service members, Monday listeners, Happy New Year to all of you. Happy New Year, Murph. How are you, buddy? Hey, Owen. How's it going? It's going all right. It's going all right. I'm looking forward to another fine year of broadcasting with my, my pal, Murph. My big, long... <laughs> Lovely friend, <laughs> uh, thank you all. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to to working closely alongside my work colleague and sometime co-conspirator yeah. Owen McDevitt. That's that's it's cold. That's, it's cold. Uh, yeah. Didn't sense any warmth. I'm all you know business I mean? in 2024. Old. That's yeah, what exactly. Yeah, this is the year of business. <laughs> from the normal pods. Speaking of which, the normal pods will resume tomorrow for all you members listening. Ken's got a football pod on the way. That'll be Tuesday's show. We'll be talking about the Rugby Interpros this week as well. Today, what we're doing is we are going to take our favourite interview of the last year, one of our favourite ever, on the Second Captain's Podcast. And we're going to make it available to everyone. Ronnie O'Sullivan visited us in May 2023. And got to say, it was a wonderful couple of hours from start to finish. He was promoting his book, Unbreakable. And a lot of the time in this sort of scenario, the sports person might have another appearance either side of coming in. So you don't mm. always get much time to talk and get warmed up. But we did get that time at Ronnie. He was in with Sambos and pastries. He, he, he hadn't had lunch himself. So he was eating his lunch, chatting away. One of the things we talked about actually was the Amazon documentary that's come out since, Murph. I listened yeah. to your movie club last week. I think it's fair to say you enjoyed the Ronnie O'Sullivan documentary. Yeah, and so did Ken and so did Brano. Yeah. Uh, it's, inc- it's incredibly good. It's just an incredibly good documentary. Uh, um, yeah, just uh, the extent to which you're swept up in whatever anxiety or panic attack, like however you describe what was going on during the World Championship Final in 2022, you get to see it all, uh, and I, you know, Ronnie was talking to us before the interview, even in our offices, about how, yeah, he was a bit, you know, a bit kind of freaked out by uh, the watching the footage which, back of himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, as he's saying that, you're kind of, well, maybe that's maybe that's something you say if you're 
you know, if you're not entirely comfortable with how you look on screen or how you sound on screen. I mean, it's perfectly natural in a lot of ways for the subject of a documentary to say, oh, well, you know, I was a bit uncomfortable, you know, letting people into my yeah, home yeah. or whatever. It would be almost weird if you weren't. It would be almost weird if there was a, a, like a proper truthful documentary about your anyone's life and you felt oh I'm I'm absolutely loving every second of this <laughs> yeah so I so kind of took yeah. I, I kind of took Ronnie at face value on that uh, and yeah, then I watched yeah. the documentary I was like yeah I can see why you'd be a little uncomfortable uh, showing right. this yeah. so it's um, it's it reflects well on him that it's all in there uh, and it gives oh, well I mean it's literally like um, like you're in the huddle uh, during a penalty shootout and you can literally hear what the players are saying to each other. Like, it's that kind of level of tension, you know? If, like a penalty shootout for a World Cup final or something. It's like you're sat in the middle of the Argentinian team huddle uh, in the moments before, during, and immediately after the penalty shootout that won them the World Cup final. That's kind of the level of pressure uh, and just intensity that the documentary tells you all about. So, yeah, I'm repeating myself here on from uh, last week, but it's pretty bloody good. You get a sense of some of that tension, some of what Murph is talking about there in our chat with him, which we greatly enjoyed. For some of our World Service members, it's actually your third time hearing this conversation, which reminds me, get in here, Simon. Come here. Get in. What a a lovely way to start the year, uh, reflecting on my greatest blunder of the previous year. (laughs) That's how it it happens, uh, Simon. (laughs) You guys never mention all the embargoes I don't miss. That's his job, isn't it? Yeah. It's true. uh, It's, yeah, I mean, the mailman delivering mail and so on. I'm just going to get my, my pen and my second captain's headed paper out here. One second. Murph, if you could just sign here. Uh, no problem. It would actually be a pleasure. It's the only way he'll improve on. <laughs> there you go. Simon, that's your official written warning for inadvertently breaking the embargo on that interview and releasing it on the day of recording. It's actually <laughs> supposed to go out a few days later. You can now leave, Simon. Thank you for your contribution to this first podcast yeah. of the year. Thanks, guys. This is really enjoyable. Great. Thanks. See you later, son. If you like this kind of interview and you're not already a member of the World Service, he's a great guy, Murph, all the same, isn't he? Ah, yeah. Well, Just he, t- he took it with good grace. Yeah. He I mean, did. He did. He, he didn't did have any choice. He did the necessary there. If you're not already a member of the World Service, have a think about supporting us for only five euro a month plus fat. Sign up to Second Captain. Seems like a fairly solid New Year's resolution to me. And remember, there's no minimum contract. Well, I suppose technically there is. I mean, a month is a minimum contract, but that's mm. that's pretty fair. You know, that's be, you pay your five euro signing front, up. And there's no yeah. contract beyond the fiver. So, exactly. I mean, that's yeah. the way to phrase it. Here is our conversation with the great Ronnie O'Sullivan. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams? Don't you rumble? Look like a butterfly and sting like a beast. Don't give a damn about the money, being shot, take the title, take it all, and go to jail tomorrow. This chump has got everybody scared. Scared of what? You told him I don't have nothing but a prayer. Well, chump, all I need is a prayer, because if that prayer reached the right man, not only will George Fulmer fall, but mountains will fall. Oh, my God, he's won the title back at 32. Miss Rashawn Barker, it's something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. You saw him on television, there was no one more beautiful. You saw him walking down the street, he was a beautiful thing to see. He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good-looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, wrestler, football player. And to be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry. He had it all. Sugar man, met a false friend on a lonely, dusty road. Special fighting machine. You know, it was handsome, it was articulate, it was funny, charismatic was whooping ass too Ronnie thanks so much for coming into us thanks for the pastries as well that's always a good start <laughs> yeah pastries were good <laughs> nice uh, you passed a photo of Ken Doherty there one of your contemporaries on the way in yeah I never realised until reading this book that his arrival in your club in London mm. basically set back your technique for many years and it took you a long time to change it up again well it's, not, not Ken's fault we should say yeah no listen I was quite you know, impressionable as a young kid. Ken was the best player I'd ever seen live play the game. You know, I never got to see Steve Davis live. I just, from the TV. So obviously, day to day, in the same club as Ken, watching him, admiring him, thinking, you know, I'd love to be able to play the game as good as Ken. So I thought if I endorse some of the things that he does, his technique, him and James Watana, really. James Watana was another one that I used to copy. Um you know, and, and and in hindsight, I probably should have stuck with what I had, which was pretty good as it was. Um, whether all snooker players go through that, where they chop and change techniques and end up regretting it, I don't know. But um, yeah, I lost some of my dynamic, my power, my natural power. Um, and yeah, just sort of, yeah, yeah, a bit of a, one of the, one of the regrets of my life, not because, you know, it, it just didn't work for me. You know, I should have kept with what I got. As a kid, like I said, you're impressionable and you want to learn. You want to. All I wanted to do was be better than Ken. Yeah. Um, How long did it take you then to get that back to to work it all back to where I, you were when you were? I don't 40? think I've ever ever got back to where I was. Um, ever. Um, I think it, I, I went so long with struggling, uh, maybe six seven years. Um, I think in 2000 I spoke to a coach, a guy called Frank Adamson, who coached Stephen Lee. And I said to him, look, I like, I like the job you've done with Stephen. Um, can you do that with me? I said, because, um, you know, I knew I had to stop self-coaching and, and get someone that can look from the outside in and give me, you know, and, and just trust them. Mm. And it took a while. It took a year before I f- really felt comfortable with it. And the changes I made from 1999 to 2000, 
um, were, were massive. You know, I look back now at videos of when I was playing between 1996, 1997 to 2000. And, you know, and then from 2001 onwards, it's like I've changed for the better but still not quite got back to how I heard it before, you know, mm. and I don't think I ever will. And that's the thing that um, has plagued me more than anything, you know, not the game, just my technique and my ability to, f you know, hit the sweet spot of that ball every time, you know. Cheapest. Does Ken know all this? You trace not it all back really, to that? Not really, not really, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't Ken, maybe it was just, I don't know, I'm just, sometimes you try to look back and kind of go, well, where did I go wrong where should have I well hang on sorry I should just say you're a seven time world champion you're one of the mm. greatest sports people around yeah and you're talking about where did it all go wrong yeah like the George Best line <laughs> <laughs> yeah because I'm I'm always thinking like what could have been not, not, not like oh yeah I'm grateful for what I got yeah I kind of have to force myself to think of like the, the glass is half full if you like but then I kind of think well what could I have eked a bit more out of you know what could have been so um yeah, I'm always like living that sort of place of like, hmm, I wonder how many I could have got. Um, if really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wonder. Even now, even having won one again yeah. as recently as last year. Yeah, I always wonder. Like there was there was two or three that got away, so there could have been nine. Um, and then I think if I would have not had my problems with my technique and be happy with my game, maybe I wouldn't have found solace in drinking drugs and lost five or six years from 1995 to. 2000 I maybe could have won a world championships a bit earlier could have won 10 could have won 11 could have won 12 who knows um, I'll take 7 because of uh, because of you know in hindsight looking back I never at one stage I thought I might not ever win one because that's how bad I, and unconfident I felt within my game you know I, I went from being super confident as a kid on and off the table to really unconfident because I, my game kind of it wasn't right you know and I and, a lot of my confidence was based on my game as a person. Mm. You know, it kind of gave me, you know, that belief that you get from something just kind of, you carry it through you every day. It's like your your natural state most of the time. But when I lost it, I was, you know, it was hard. It was really hard. And I still haven't got it. That's why I still struggle, you know, because I'm wrestling with the game. You know, I'm wrestling with that. Is it there? Ain't it there? Is it there? Ain't it there? <laughs> You know, oh, okay, it's there, got through, oh, relief. And you just think, it's, it's quite exhausting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Have you been out running lately? Yeah, I was, um, I've been out every day, apart from yesterday, because I had to start early, doing some press for the book. Um, so I won't run, I didn't run yesterday, I didn't run today. I'll start my run tomorrow again. Um, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm enjoying, I love my, I love, I don't love running. I love the feeling that I get from it. And I love this, you know, the, you know how I feel after a run. It's sort of like start the day off with a run, and then the rest of the day is like if it's an average day, it's still a great day. You know what I mean? Like so, it's good, it's good for me and my well-being. You know? Yeah, I gotta say, you forced me out this morning. Just I don't I don't know if it was I don't know if you you inspired me or I just felt guilty about I've been a bit sluggish the last couple of weeks, yeah. and I thought I want to talk to you about running, and you're you're right about it so beautifully. Yeah. So I forced myself out this morning. I have to thank you for that. Yeah. What, what what are your tips for anyone who? kind of wants to get out there but doesn't want to get out of bed because you know it's it's a cosy place especially during the winter not so much now yeah I always find um, accountability is good so arrange a run with a friend um, you know meet up so every morning I try to do that and then there's 
but then that can be a danger as well because you think well if I haven't got someone to run with am I likely to do it so sometimes I have to force myself to run some weeks on my own just to prove to myself that I don't need anybody because you sometimes you've got to just do it on your own and you and I can but you just kind of I always think meeting up with a friend is you know it's like you can't get out of it you know I'm meeting <laughs> you at half seven like I can't ring him at quarter to seven and say like I don't feel like it because that's really not good so that is one of my best sort of um, tips and I think buy yourself a heart rate monitor Mm-hmm. Um, get a watch and and, 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 and and train in a zone that's so easy that it actually feels quite boring um, because I think a lot of people try to go out the door, run hard, me included, and we kind of blow up a little bit too early. I think I always like to, if you're running for half an hour, 20 minutes or an hour, the first half should feel boring. Um, the second half, you can then go, right, okay, let's finish strong. So it's kind of like a, a lot of the, people that I know that run the marathon and they run it very well a friend of mine he's 52 and he's just run two hours 30 oh wow which is one of the best he's one of the best 50 year olds in the country and his his advice is if if you're not bored after halfway you've gone too hard (laughs) and it doesn't matter if it's a a marathon half marathon 10k 5k learning to run the first half easy enough to allow yourself to push really hard on the second half is the key Mm. um so a heart rate monitor helps you stay within that zone and you get much more out of it. In fact, when you train properly, it feels easy. Um, 20% of your training should feel hard. A lot of people struggle to do that. Um, but it's quite weird. You know, a lot of, if you're if you become a distance runner, a lot of the time it's about, you know, recovering. So on a, you know, 20% of my runs will be hard. 80% of it, I try to keep as easy as I can. Um, because the improvements are made when you're fresh. Yeah. Um, but to get fresh, you've got to go easy as well. You know? <laughs> and then when you run hard, you've got to be fresh enough to run hard, if that makes sense. You must be running pretty hard when you ran a sub 35 minute 10K, which is very, very impressive running, Ronnie. That was a bit out of my comfort zone. Uh, the week, the, about the month before, I ran 35.50, and that felt easy. I come over line 35.50, and I thought, oh, that was a doddle, you know, I wasn't even out of breath. So I knew there was a bit more in there, and then when I went to France, I was with the Supersonic Running family. So my mate Chris Davis, he runs 28 minutes uh, for 10K, he ran in the Commonwealth Games. His brother-in-law run 2.09 for the marathon, come 10th in the Commonwealth Games. Okay. His other brother-in-law run 2 hours 16 for a marathon. His sister's run 34 minutes for 10K. His girlfriend's run 35 minutes for 10K. So I'm surrounded by this the, this family in France. We've, got, we've all gone away on a, a running holiday. And, uh, and the brother-in-law said, I can't do the half marathon because I'm not fit, but I'm going to pace you round to get a PB. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I got to 5K in about 17 minutes. We went, we're on, we're on time. Target. I went, Mark, I can't keep this up. <laughs> he went, you can, you can. He said, chest up, chest up, chest up, run tall. And I went, I'm dying, Mark. And he went, just keep going. And I kept going and kept going. And then we got to about 9K. And I went, and I just, and I just went. And I, and I and he went and then after race he went you're telling me at 5k you couldn't go he said but the last k I said yeah because it was only a k to go <laughs> I said look 5k when you're dying and you've got another 5k to go you're like I can't do this again so I managed to shave a minute off my PB but it was only because he dragged me around otherwise I'd have just I'd have cruised in at 35.30 or something I 
spoke to a knee surgeon recently, just socially. I just met him mm. on a social occasion and he said to me, oh, are you still running your marathons? And mm. I said, yeah, you know, hoping for a follow up about uh, what are your times or, you know, some yeah. some running talk. And he's like, yeah, all right, I'll see you in a few years. Um, <laughs> which people always talk about. They don't know what about running. They don't talk about footballers getting injured, but there's this, 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 this stigma around runners just like wrecking yeah. their knees and everything. But yeah. you are uh, a professional snooker player. Yeah. You've always got that to think about. Yeah. So, does it has it ever impacted on your snooker picking up the, the kind of niggles and the injuries that you get from running? Sometimes, but I always think the good as far outweighed the bad. So I've sprained ankles, broken feet, um, overtrained, gone into matches tired. But really, on the whole, over the twenty years of having running in my life, it's kind of like definitely kept me sane. Um, because like running is a physical sport, but snooker is a mental sport. So I've mentally bashed myself up for 25, 30 years, all, all snooker players do. Um, so for me to be able to balance the books, I get out and I run, clear my mind, and it allows me to come back with a clear head to, mm. to face the mental side of the sport, which snooker is. It's a mental sport, it's not a physical sport. So a clear head for snooker is is what you need, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've, I've definitely had my injuries, but they've been... You know, you can't compare the the trade between the positives and the negatives that it's had in my life. Far the positives far outweigh the negatives. Were you a happy kid? Yeah, very happy kid. Um, I know it sounds crazy because a lot of people say this. You know, they look into your childhood, and I had a great upbringing, great life, happy kid. Probably a bit too happy-go-lucky in many ways. Um, I think my dad was a bit like a um, tough taskmaster on me little bit like maybe Serena Williams' dad was with his daughters, you know, just a, just sort of drummed it into me. Um, in what way? What, what just, form of that Just thing? to win, just to win, just to, you know, to show no emotion, you know, you know, losing has to hurt. You know, I'd lose and I'd be like, oh, like, can we come back late for the handicap? And my dad went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, on the way on a, home in the car, I never went near a snooker table for 10 weeks. He proper, like, insulted me in front of his dad and I'm like 10 and I've just lost a challenge match to a kid and I wasn't bothered because I just was always thinking about can I play on the Sunday night one frame handicap and he was like you embarrassed me you losing didn't hurt you and I was like I was like wow so I'd embarrassed him in front of because I lost to another 10 year old and I was like really uh, and that, that that was quite hard you know because I I just wanted to have fun. I just wanted to enjoy, <laughs> you know, just play pop balls, <laughs> and you know, and, it, and then it turned into like, no, you're not just going to pop balls. You're gonna, you're gonna become this monster. How did you deal with that? Because this yeah. is something, you know, you could say it worked in one way in, yeah. in, in that you've become this seven-time world champion. Yeah. But did it damage you in other ways? Do you think? I suppose in some ways, uh, I became a person, or that I wasn't naturally supposed to you know it wasn't it wasn't natural to me i look at other people and i, I look at them and i go yeah it, it comes natural to them to to survive in the heat of battle to to want to win to compete to you know I look at stephen hendry and i just think it's in his dna you know that you don't have to teach that he was just like he was just pro you know he was just guided by ian doyle to be disciplined but really he didn't have to really employ a sports psychologist for Stephen Hendry it was just like he was mm. built to just just to win um, yeah I, I wasn't and I think 
you know, um, I think in a way I became someone I wasn't and I'm not really comfortable with it either. Um, but it's hard, you know, you know, because there is a there is a winning mentality and there is a losing mentality. And the minute I switch off, I lose. The minute I have to switch on, which is a lot of the work I've done with Steve Peters, which is basically designed to make me think like Stephen Hendry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and it's sort of like, I have to really work at it. I have to really work at being that resilient, that that intense. Because really, I just want to go, can we just, like, have a bit of fun here? And just, fun, like, yeah. you know, see if we can pop 15 reds, 15 blacks without touching cushions and just have a laugh. Well, it's an amazing, there's an amazing clip that you mentioned in your mm. book when you were interviewed by Danny Baker. We're going to have a listen mm. to this. Young snooker players today don't have to hustle. Ronnie O'Sullivan has already won several thousand pounds from tournaments at the age of 11. My uncle got a table for his son and I started playing that and I thought it was good. Couldn't knit a ball to save my life, but and then my dad got me a table at Christmas. How do you feel when you watch snooker on the television you see the Steve Davises and everybody else? Is that where you're headed? Yeah. How big do you want to be? 5'10". <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you weren't joking. You were just innocently asking the question. Yeah, do you want to yeah. Get? Because that was always my thing. Because I was at the snooker club, and I was like, obviously smaller than all the good players, like Ken, and that they were like just getting over potting balls. And I used to have to use the rest a lot. And I used to say to my dad, "Do you think I'll ever grow tall enough to be like that, like those guys?" I said, "Because if I don't grow, I'm never going to be as good as they are." He went, "Yeah, don't worry, you'll grow, you'll grow." So I had this thing of like. I needed to be at least 5'10 to be a good snooker player. I looked at Stephen Hendry, Steve Davis, I thought, they're both six, six feet. So the the perfect height, the perfect height, I'll take 5'10, you know, six foot might be out of the question. I might be asking a bit much because I was just a midget, really, a little, little, I was little, little Ronnie. Um, so just 5'10 would have been, if you'd handed me that then, I'd have been happy with that. So. I, I think, listen to that, I don't know what you feel. I feel this, it's very poignant because you're so innocent, you're just mm. a little kid. Mm. Also, knowing what's to come in your life and how mm. fast you're going to have to grow up mm. just a few years later, it feels very poignant to me. What's it like to you listening back to yourself at that age? Yeah, obviously just a kid, um, young, but yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I was like, I, 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 yeah, I just, when I look back at some of that footage and when I was a kid playing, I just, I just think, you know, I was just loving the game, playing. If I could have kept on that track, I always like I say, I always wonder what what could have been. Um, but it is, you know, it is what it is, and yeah, I just sort of looking back on it. I suppose I don't know. I don't know what to make of it all. To be honest with you, it's a it's a it's a it's a weird one. Um, I don't know. I just sometimes I'm I, sometimes I think I'm the worst snooker player in the world. I think like you know, it's all a bit of a hoax. I feel like there's imposter syndrome going on. You're serious? Yeah. At this stage? Yeah, yeah. even at this stage, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. It'll never leave me. I've give up trying to sort of convince myself. Um, otherwise, you know, I've worked a lot with Steve Peters and I'm, I'm much better at kind of... I have to look at facts now. That's the only thing I can do is look at facts because that's the only thing that I, I just can't mess about with. Feelings and my interpretation... I, I come up with all the wrong answers. Um, so I'm really bad at analysing and judging my own performance. I'm really bad at kind of... I'm really good at putting other people up there and putting myself down there. Um, and then I'll, you know, I'll kind of like go, OK, well, let's just get the facts. You know, I've won seven Worlds, seven UK, seven Masters. I've been successful as a junior, as an amateur. Come on, it's not a hoax. It's not... 
there's no imposter you know what I mean this is all real stuff just to kind of get myself to a point where I'm like I feel like worthy you know what I mean so yeah. and it's horrible feeling because you think I don't know it's just sort of like you know just hard on myself you know I'm just really really hard on myself so I, I don't really allow myself to enjoy it because I just think you know I just think you know something something's <laughs> it's hard to put my you know uh, yeah I just think I don't deserve it, you know. Don't deserve it. It shouldn't be, you know. If I'd have been that kid at twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and how I was feeling, I was confident in myself. I go, yeah, it all two plus two. It works. It makes sense. But from how I feel and how insecure I feel about the game, to then warrant all them wins and the success that I've managed to get in snooker, I do the maths and I'm like, no, it can't be right. Every, you know what I mean? There's something not right here, you know. You were still only 16 when your yeah. dad was sent away, yeah. was sent to prison. Mm. What role did that play in all this? Um, that was obviously the, the 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 worst thing that could have possibly happened. Um, that just took, ruined me. I always say, you know, that was like the yeah. I never I never really recovered recovered from from that. Um, and it's okay to look at it in there because at the time I was young and just you know I just had to get on with it really. Um, but yeah, that was sort of that was hard hard to take. You know, six I was only just sixteen at the time as well, um, knowing that he wasn't going to be around for at least twenty years. He was my backbone. He was the person that instilled belief in me, and I just thought I can't. You know, it was hard enough as it was then. You know, we we were like on a good role but without him I didn't see how I was going to be able to keep going you know um, didn't know what was going to happen really and yeah it sort of fell apart got myself back together fell apart got myself back together but I've just kept going you know in, in some ways but um, yeah like I say I always look back and think what could have been you know what could have you know but life just takes funny funny turns at sometimes you know you say that your dad was your idol and mm. then he he is sent to prison did your feelings towards your dad change did he come off that sort of pedestal for you knowing what he had done not really no not really because he was always my dad I always knew he had a massive heart I always knew it was it was out of character for him to for what happened to him I always put it down to his naivety his good nature and 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 his his inability to choose the right friends you know he was just sort of you know some people choose the right company my dad didn't you know and i think he got wrapped up in a circle of friends that were really good at giving him a pat on the back he said this himself the other day you know he said i loved it you know pat me on the back you know they had loads of them people and i think that kind of can you can lose sense of reality and I think he, if he would have chose different people that, that would have given him a bit of truth and he would have listened to it, maybe he would have made different decisions. So I never never blame him for that or never sort of change my attitude towards him. Does that... I just felt sorry for him. Sorry, I felt sorry for him, you know. I feel like he's had a hard life, but my dad's first met, he said, I took a guy's life, you know, and that's... I've done my time and, you know, he's... Yeah, he's had to live with that, you know. Does that take the agency away from him somewhat by putting it down to naivety and the people that he was with when 
it was actually him who committed the act that he, he committed ultimately. Say that again. Does it a little bit when you're talking about how he was naive and was yeah. mixed up with the wrong people? He he still did what he did. Yeah. though he was the person who did that. Yeah, uh, th- that's why I'm asking it. The fact that he did such a thing and committed such an awful mm. crime, whether or not that that knocked your view of him in any way. Um. Oh, listen. Um. It's just yeah. I, it was hard, yeah, it was hard, you know, I I look back now and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult one, I mean, I love my dad and I just would, you know, I'm loyal and, you know, if we could turn the clock back, he would have done, everyone would have done, um, I, I can't, I can't sit, sit there and ever sort of, I don't know, be against him I just couldn't I just couldn't do it I just couldn't do it because I know you know he didn't want that to happen it was just one of them things you know your snooker became a means to keep him going yeah while he was in prison which is a lot of pressure to be mm. putting on yourself I would mm. have thought yeah yeah it was it was um, but it's like I had freedom, I had choices, I had the ability to kind of try and keep things going for my mum, for my sister, for my dad. It was like, you know, he was in there, No, he had no control over anything anymore, really. Uh, he was out of the picture. So, some, so I had to be like a bit of the man, man of the house in many ways, and part of that was to try and succeed at snooker and try to do him proud do my mum proud and just be a bit of a rock if, if if you like you know try and not replace my dad but you know someone had to sort of try and be the man of the house and uh so yeah there was a lot of pressure on me I, and i did feel it in the first year mm. i couldn't really play because everything was just about doing winning and I didn't win and I felt like I'd let him down so I found that really tough second year maybe got a little bit more used to it managed to get my first win started to feel a little bit comfortable out there um but yeah it was it was it was it was yeah, in high look back at it you know it was um wasn't an easy situation to be in there he still doesn't come to your matches like mm. we saw him there last year when you won but he's not actually there in the arena yeah he doesn't come in the arena because we worked out years ago when I was a kid that him being in the in the room watching me play, I never played. I was too scared to play the right shot, do this, do that. I was thinking, well, what, what shot would Dad want me to play? And then when he stopped coming, I'd play great. Um, so we decided that as long as he's not watching me live and I could not feel his energy, it's more about the energy. Um, I said he can be in the building, but just give him his room, teas, coffees and his telly and I know that's fine. Uh, so yeah, he was at Sheffield and he was just pacing around the city centre, watching a bit of it on the big screen. Um, he would, yeah, he, would, he knows not to come in the venue. So it's, it's, it, we, 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 we found a happy compromise, you know. You say at one point, I want to play my snooker like peak Guardiola's Barcelona. I want yeah. to play like Messi. Yeah. What is it about Messi that you like in terms of what you're doing in your game? I just think the way he plays, it's sort of like it's, he's unplayable. You know, when someone's that good, they become unplayable. So it doesn't matter what the other opponent does, doesn't matter what game plan they got. It goes completely out the window because you can't teach what Messi does. It's like he's playing a different game. And it's it happens so quick, so fast. 
that before you know it, it's game over. And all my best games have been where I'm not thinking, I'm playing quick, I'm on top, I'm out of blocks, quick, game's over, 5 0, 5 1, whatever the score. And you think, like, you know, you just. You know, there's nothing they could have done done about it. You know, and you just think that's a great place to be um, when you're playing. You know, I don't want to have to like grind out results. I don't want to have to stifle my opponent. I, I don't really want to play that game. So, like being able to play, how me- like if you could play like how Barcelona played and the way Messi played sport for me, that is. That's where we all want to be, you know. Do you see him as a great natural talent? And I ask mm. that in a slightly loaded way mm. because that's a tag that has always been thrown at you. Yeah. And one that you're not always that happy with or comfortable mm. with. Yeah, I think I watched a video of Messi when he was a kid and he was just like he is now. So <laughs> unbelievable talent, incredible. And you watch Tiger Woods and you watch these people that they were like kids, you just thought oh, they're going to make it. Um, hard for me to say that about myself. But what I do know is is that there's a lot of hard work that has to go into it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that word talent gets banded around quite... It's, it's, if they were to say he was the most naturally talented player to ever pick up a cue, but he also works harder than anyone else on the table, I might be able to accept it. <laughs> but when they say he's the most talented player to ever pick up a cue, but they don't mention the, the hours and the time that I put in to become as good as I can, then I find it, oh, hold on, you're, you're saying that, but you're not really... It's like a backhanded compliment is what you're saying. Yeah, it's just sort of like, you know, it's all right for him. I'm like, it's not really all right for me. You know, I, I go in the club at 10 o'clock in the morning and I'm not out there till 9 o'clock at night. I've given up my life for this since I was like, you know, 25, 30. It was only when I got to 30 that I went, okay, I don't need to do six, seven hours every day. I can maybe get away with three or four, but I still work really hard. That doesn't get mentioned and you kind of go... You know, and it, and it annoys me sometimes. I just think, and I just think, oh, whatever, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you, you bring up different sports people quite a lot, a lot of analogies with Tiger Woods and Roger Federer and stuff. Do you think about yourself in those terms, how you compare with these other great sports people? I think so at some point you sort of like reach a point in your own field where you kind of go, okay, um, Steve Davis was most successful in Stephen Hendry, and then you kind of reach whatever they've reached and then you kind of go okay so how do I learn from other sports people so Michael Jordan was one um, I, I used to watch what he done um, how he kind of developed as a player I like to look at Djokovic Federer I like to see I like to watch sportsmen that have had to reinvent themselves as well Okay. so you watch Federer come up against Nadal kind of a bit of his nemesis and Federer even though he was so talented realised that there was a certain shot that Nadal would play which nullified what he'd done. So it was great to see Federer acknowledge that and go, OK, well, this is one guy I just can't blast off the court, so I've got to improve my game. And I, and I just love that about other sports people that have been so successful, but yet there's still there's still one guy out there that has got their number. Mm. You know, there's still, there's still, you know, no matter how good Messi is, there's probably some opponent he thinks, I like, why am I finding it difficult to get past this fellow? Someone always can... You'd be a difficult opponent for you, and I'm really like intrigued at how certain sports people, no matter how great they've got in their chosen field, they're still open to think, How can I become better? Mm. and that's why I like to look at other sports because in my field of snooker, I don't see anyone doing that. I don't, I Stephen Hendry, I did Steve Davis, I learned so much from them, but now I look around, and I think there's a lot of lazy snooker players, you know, that are half hearted. 
So then I think, well, that's not where I want to be. I want to learn from Usain Bolt. I want to learn from, you know, Novak Djokovic. What's what's he doing? Why, how comes he's like still going? Um, you know, like Ronaldo, Messi, like, you know, he's got his own coach with him, 24-7 Ronaldo, like in the gym. And I'm like, that's why he's kept going. Because he's, he's just not contented. And I and I don't want to be a contented snooker player. You know, the minute I become contented, the minute I become like, you know, I don't, you know, your performance suffers, I think. You know, you stand still. If you're standing still, that means you're going backwards. You know, you've got to strive to go forward and, and evolve. Evolution in sport is, is what happens, you know. Speaking of evolution, there was a line in, in here saying, describing snooker as Darwinism with cues and waistcoats. Yeah. I remember reading Andre Agassi's book years ago and it really opened my eyes to how competitors in a non-contact sport Mm. can still feel like gladiators like it's a gladiatorial mm. kind of mm. a contest mm. and that's very clear here as well mm. when you're can you maybe take us into the heat of a world championship final battle when you're right in the thick of that yeah. and the, the the sort of doggy dog nature of it the ruthlessness that you have to have the tension of it all because well, it's a little bit like what I said it earlier you know it's there's been many a time sitting in that chair at the crucible playing John Higgins playing Steven where you're You've been humiliated. You've been totally like played off the table, and no one wants to do that. You know, your ego gets dented. Your you go away, and you just think that was a, that was a, that was a, not a nice place to be. Yeah. So you you never want that to happen to you. So you kind of like you're either on the receiving end of it or you're dishing it out. And I decided I'd rather be dishing it out. And and although I'm not one of them people that um, naturally is like Stephen Hendry, who was like you know had no sympathy for anybody. I, I tend to do have, can sometimes play someone and think, he's going through a hard time here, you know, he must be really like half this guy. So I have to then fight against that and go, you know what, if I let up here, that could be me that's getting, <laughs> that's, that, that. so you kind of go, it's, it is a dog eat dog and I have to switch on and I have to do a job and I have to disregard how bad it might be for my opponent my job is to just go out there to play the best that I can play to dominate the table and I know that every every time I, I I'm in form or I'm playing and I'm scoring big breaks it's really having a dent on what my opponent you know how he's going to perform you know if I'm performing well it's it's keeping him at arm's length it's keeping him on the back foot and the more he's on the back foot the more you're kind of like dictating play the more you're kind of like you know and, and it, I've had it done to me you know there's mm. been times where I've played players and I thought oh, I just I just don't fancy it before I've even started I'm thinking I'm beat before I started and, and, and they would usually beat me so you know you kind of get them battle scars and so really you just want to be the one dishing it out rather than getting it done to you so Operating Ronnie at that heightened level of tension sort of day mm. after day yeah. does that bring on the anxiety still? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I think it's. I think it's like a prolonged. If you play match after match after match, tournament after tournament, you know the adrenaline can keep you going for so long, and then you kind of get to a point where you you're pretty flat, but you still keep going, and then at some point the anxiety kicks in because you kind of become a little bit like played out, burnt out, and then you become a bit flat, and then all of a sudden after that, then anxiety can kick in. Um, you know the world championships is 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 a different ball game altogether. So I accept that from the minute 
the first year I played at the World Championships, well, let's say the first year, say from 2000 when I generally went there as someone that was a contender, you know, up until, you know, 1993 to 2000, I didn't really class myself as a contender. So there, there wasn't really much pressure on me. But from 2001, uh, the first year that I, I won it, I actually went there with, you know, with the mindset of, you know, to win this tournament. And when you go there with that mindset, it, it brings a different type of expectation, a different type of pressure. And I felt it every year. Every year I've gone to the World Championships from 2001 to now, to this year, there's always been that anxiety, that pressure, that panic, that, that like, you know. Um, but amongst that, there's been times where you think, I'm, f I'm flying, yeah. you know, I'm playing strong. You know, it's not like it all the time, but there's little moments where you just think, this is, this is a, this is a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really enjoying it. Um, what do those moments feel like? Can you describe those for us? A couple of times I've had stage fright. A couple of times I've like played and just thought, I can't play out. I can't play my way out of this. I'm, I'm gone. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely gone. My, my arm is frozen. I can't get the cue through. I'm not going to, I don't fancy I can put two or three balls together. If I come out of this session, you know, usually we play eight frames. If I come out of this session with one frame, I'll be over the moon. Um, that stage fright, that's happened twice to me at the Crucible. Um, once against John Higgins in the final and once against Judd Trump in the final. Um, but that, just in that session, I was able to recuperate and, and turn it around. But they was, they was, those were the worst, you know, types of fear, anxiety. But then there's just a lot of times where you just go out there and you just, you know, you just feel, you know, it's not going to be your day, you know, and you just sort of, you know. And it's, 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 a, it's a tough place to play snooker, you know, Crucible. Find, find it hard. What do you do then in those situations? Um, I think I've learned that it's quite a fickle so like I said to you it's not always like that it's realising it's fickle it's realising that within a match you're going to have shifts of momentum you're going to be down you're going to be up you're going to be down you're going to be up and it's just about ignoring the feelings and, and going with the facts you know and just and just staying present and just being persistent and being res resilient you know in, in many ways uh, and just keep chipping away and in the end you just you just take everything into smaller chunks so instead of thinking oh there's 17 days you know I, I, I treat every match at the crucible like it's a final so the first round is not a first round no this is a final first to ten <laughs> that's what we usually play in a final first to ten so this match is not a best of seven, first of four. You know, this has got a lot of play in it. Second round, another final. Third round, another final. Semi-final, this is a final. Every match is a final. So, you, you know, it's five finals. And I kind of, like, break it down in, into smaller chunks. And and then you can kind of um, manage it a bit better, mm -hmm. I think, you know. Do you enjoy it, the snooker? I enjoy it knowing that nobody enjoys it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like I enjoy it knowing that I'm not the only one out there feeling under pressure. I just go, you know what? It's like in a race, you're running. The guy behind me would have been in front of me if he could have done. So he's running as hard as I am. Um, so, you know, and I, and, I, and, I, and I relate to the same as Snook. I think he's feeling just the same as I am. He might disguise it in another way. He might have a, a, a better coping mechanism. But he's still under pressure. He's still like... You know, f ten minutes before he's got knock on the door, he's thinking like he's twitching, hundred percent. So 
I wouldn't enjoy it if I thought I'm the only one out there suffering. Because <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I, I'm at a disadvantage here, but I know they're all feeling it. We all kind of handle it in different ways. Um, some people don't voice it out. Me, I'll go in and go, oh, you know, say it as it is. A lot of people say, yeah, I should keep, shouldn't disclose all my feelings, but I'm not worried, you know what I mean? I just think I can be, I can be on the floor 10 minutes before I'm going out and go out there and play a blinder. So I, I don't worry that I'm all over the gaff. On the floor, is that a physical or a yeah, mental? literally issue? on the floor, like laying in my chair, like I can't go out, you know, and I can't face it, you know, I can't pot a ball and then listen and I'll go and play the session and then play the blinder, you know. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean you can, you know, like you've got to be calm, serene, listen, you're going to play well. No, I mean, there's loads of times where I'm in the crucible and I'm like a nervous wreck pacing up and down. I'm like sitting in my chair, like don't even know what score it is, you know. If you, if you asked me what the score was, I'd, I'd, I'd get it wrong. Um, just because your, 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 your mind's just being taken over by the pressure the pressure of the situation. But once I'm down there playing, it's like, all right, come on, like, let's, let's play, you know. And somehow you kind of hold it together. Does that scare you, that the yeah. switch can be flicked like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, big time. You know, sometimes you get to see it back, um, which I've been fortunate or not fortunate to see. But you kind of look at yourself and you think, and, and my friends have said it to me before. He said to me, I'm like, I'm talking to you before you go out. And I think, like, ah, you know, he's got to go out there and play in a minute. He said, I'm sitting in the crowd, I think, oh, I hope he's going to be all right. He said, You go out there and play a blind. And I think, How has he gone from that to that in the space of five minutes? You just sort of switch on and you switch off. But do you really switch off? You know, it's sort of, um, you know, I don't know, are you just faking it out there? Sometimes, like I said, it's like that imposter syndrome. I think, like, How have I able to play feeling that nervous do I really want to play feeling that nervous you know it's sort of different competitions different matches different opponents bring out different sort of dynamics in a game you know and sometimes I think is the crucible actually worth it at this stage of my career you know because it's it's a highly intense pressurised situation and anybody that's won it more than two or three times will tell you, you know, the guy that's won it once will go yeah it was great greatest experience of my life the guy that's won it four or five times will say it's a bit bruising. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's great, but it ain't like, you know, it takes it takes a, a lifetime of works, if you like, to kind of get to that point. So like Mark Williams, John Higgins, you know, them type of players, Selby, you know, Davis, Hendry. It sort of, it pushes you to, to like I, I, I always said, dark places. If you're prepared to go to the dark places, you, you you know you can win the world championships. Don't think you're just going to rock up to Sheffield and go, mm, yeah, I'm on form. Yeah, I'll go, yeah, this is in the bag. Nah, no chance. You keep coming back, Ronnie. I keep coming back because you never know when it's going to end. I suppose. And the Crucible is the Crucible. It's the greatest venue that we've ever played in. Equally, yin and yang. It can be the most horrendous place to play. And like I said, I felt humiliated playing there before. Um, sitting in your chair, no impact on the game. But yeah, I mean, it's just. I think I try. I try to enjoy it more now and soak it all up. Um, but it's not easy because you know. You, you you know, if I was to never play at the Crucible again, I think I'd be disappointed because of how I, my last game went at the Crucible. I was played off the park. I didn't do much in that final session, and I, and I feel disappointed. So for me. I think to end my career at the Crucible, I'd like to finish it on a good performance. <laughs> Don't have to win it, but just go, you know, I played in a good, high-quality game. The crowd, it was nice, enjoyed it. Okay, leave it there. I wouldn't want to leave it 
you know, where I, 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 I collapsed out there, like I did this year, you know, I just didn't perform, got outplayed. And, um, yeah, that was, that was, that, that, the performance disappointed me more than actually losing. Losing is just part and parcel. You know, I, we worked it out the other day, you know, I've won 28% of my time going to the crucible. So I've lost 72% of the time I've been on the losing end. So you have to accept winning and losing is part, you know, you do a lot more losing in snooker than you really do winning. If I played 20 events a year in my prime, I might have won 30, 40% of them, which is a really high, high, high striking average. But now it might only be like 5, 10% of the time. So I, I enter, I win. So 90% of the time I'm getting beat. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to accept that, you know, it's just how it is. And you have to kind of roll with the punches and, and just enjoy the game. And yeah. Enjoy seems like a strong word. Like like you say, it's, <laughs> it, it takes you to a lot of dark places. Do you Are you at a stage of your life now where you have enough going on outside of that, enough positive stuff happening? Not just happening, but enough positive yeah. stuff that you're making sure that you do, including the yeah. running we mentioned earlier and yeah. other things that balances that out somewhat? Yeah, when I say dark places, not there's only the World Championships and the Masters that do that. All the other tournaments are like practice sessions. So for all of the year I'm really like out there pl- not playing with this intensity no, I don't get anxiety you know you put me in the Scottish Open probably in a nervous bone in my body it's like it's just a paid practice session which I enjoy um, so 95% of the tournaments I play in it's like I need to try and get fired up for them but then put me in a crucible and I'm like a nervous wreck put me in a Masters 2,000 people London crowd <sighs> big tournament you feel it mm-hmm. you know you think oh god you know I want to perform here so it's only like my friend said, he says like two, three weeks of the year, you've got to like go there. So really a lot of my career is quite smooth, plain sailing really. Um, but it's just them tournaments that I, I struggle with. Um, and I do think the running has helped me. And I do think, you know, ooh, having a, a few different things going on, like distractions, if you like, going on in your life is, is, is been, been helpful for me um, to sort of not just just not just be snooker be the be and end all although it is um, I've, I've sort of been able to distance myself from it enough to kind of be okay to go back in to play you know um, yeah I think just keeping life interesting is, is what's required when you've been di- I've been playing snooker now for 40 years 30 years as a pro and it's you know sometimes you just got to like you know, why am I playing snooker? What are the benefits of playing snooker? And a lot of it is I get to travel. I get to see my mate who comes with me to most of my tournaments. I get to run in different locations every week. I get to see my friends, my running friends, which is really important to me. Um, and I get to stay in hotels and make friends with the staff and people. And yeah, so I, I, I kind of like, they're, they're the reasons why I like to play now, just to sort of, just get, get me out of bed in the morning just have a purpose yeah. in life you know well, we all need that don't we Ronnie yeah for sure listen thank you so much we'll go down and see if there's any of those pastries left <laughs> thanks so much for giving us all that time today appreciate it lovely thank you cheers fair to say anybody could have managed those guys no of course not about 12 <laughs> everyone in the city knew about him but no one had seen him how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No, really. What happened? What happened? It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.
That was Ronnie O'Sullivan, who gave us our most memorable interview of the entire year, I would say, Murph. Some some happy memories of Ronnie in the office. Yeah. Just I just have this mental picture of me uh standing over by the couch in our office, looking over at Ronnie O'Sullivan sitting yeah. at my seat eating a sandwich. And it's like that's Ronnie O'Sullivan in my seat, and he's really yeah. enjoying that sandwich. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot. It doesn't get a whole lot weirder in the uh, in our office than just watching Ronnie O'Sullivan. Just like he could have been our, he could have been an intern, given how relaxed he looked and how just you know perfectly peaceful and you know at uh, at home he 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 appeared in our office. It genuinely was. Uh, you know, one for the mental scrapbook. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a nice way of putting it, Kieran. Thank you for that. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to sign up or have a little think about signing up for the new year on secondcaptains.com. Second Captains Podcast is part of the Acast Creator A-Cast Network. Network of Creators. Yes. No, we'll keep it as it is. It's the Acast Creator Network, of course. You know that. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.